Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Kinks and Beatles Daily Deep Dive. My name is Tony Fry, and we are on episode 214, where today we're going to be talking about Top of the Pops by the Kinks. But before we do, don't forget, find us on social media all over the place, mostly at Hero Habit. If you go to herohabit.com, under the podcast page, there's a, a button at the top for podcasts. Go to Kinks and Beats, and uh, you will find all the information on where to find us on social media and how you can contribute to keep this podcast going. Thank you for everyone who has contributed so far. It's been very appreciated. Top of the Pops, released November 27th, 1970, on the album Lola vs. Power Man and the Money Ground Part 1. And in my opinion, this track should have been the second single from the album instead of Ape Man, which, as I discussed on a previous episode about that song, isn't my favorite track, but also has a lot of similarities to Lola, which was the leadoff single for, for this album. So it would have been cool, I think, if they would have gone with um, Top of the Pops on this one, because this track shows the band in, in a classic early form with energetic riff-based rock but with the mature and satirical lyrics that Ray had evolved into since they did You Really Got Me six years prior. Um, It's three minutes and 42 seconds long, has a killer drum groove, could have easily fit on the rock radio stations next to songs like American Woman or All Right Now, which both ranked higher than Lola on the overall charts for 1970, um, which is a chart Ape Man didn't even appear on. So I think, you know, had Lola comes out, it's a massive hit. And then this song comes on after it. It could have been um, bigger than Ape Man and maybe even bigger than Lola. Just based on what we were listening to, not me, I was not alive yet, but what people were listening to in 1970. Um, Which, I mean, I think the Kinks, as well as George Harrison and Paul McCartney, often misfired when it came to issuing singles. You know, they hit it out of the park with Lola, which is the obvious single. But uh, picking Top of the Pops would have reminded the world that at its core, the Kinks were still a phenomenal rock band. But they went with Ape Man, which was kind of just, you know, it used that same Dobro sound. I don't know. It just feels a little bit like um, a companion piece to to Lola, you know. And so now you're giving the appearance that the entire album is going to sound like those two songs because they are very similar, similar sonically. Um, Tom Petty has had cited Lola, the album, as a major influence on his album, um, The Last DJ, which addresses many of the same themes, corrupt music business and the rock and roll lifestyle and all that song. And this song, Top of the Pops, I would say is probably the most directly influential song on that album. Um, The Heartbreakers recorded a song called Joe that seems to be the answer to Top of the Pops. But from the point of view of the record promoter, as opposed as opposed to the artist, right? So it's almost like uh, a conversation, and it's very similar. It's 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 a lot slower than um, Top of the Pops, but it's like a crunchy guitar bass, um, just straight rock track, and uh, and it even has kind of a breakdown in it. It's more like a chorus, but he breaks it down a lot like this song breaks down. Um, And incidentally, if you are a fan of this podcast and you haven't listened to The Last DJ, you probably should because I think you'll like it. Because Petty is clearly influenced by the Kinks and the Beatles on this album, and he really doesn't try to hide it. 
you know, it's like there's some songs you're like, oh, he was definitely listening to whatever. If I needed someone by the Beatles and Top of the Pops by the Kinks when he did these two songs. It's a really good album. I think it's one of his best albums personally, but I digress. Um, In Top of the Pops, the song we're actually talking about, we are following a rock star as his new single is climbing the charts and we hear the different luxuries he's afforded as it climbs. So like when it's at 25, it's a uh, it's a rush for him. You know, you're filled with hope. I hope it gets higher. I got to go out and buy some, some new shoes. And, uh, you know, you're optimistic about what's coming. And then when it gets to 11, suddenly the music press is interested in you too. And so you, you know, they want to know everything about what you're thinking and what you're wearing. And as Ray says, my politics and theories on religion. And then the song gets to number three and you're suddenly recognized by crazed fans on the street and women want to, you know, be with you and they know your name and all this kind of stuff. You're invited to fancy dinners with important people. And then the singer gets the call from his agent that the song has hit number one. And now you can start earning some real money. So it kind of tracks this progress um, as the chart, as the song is climbing the charts. But the song also recognizes that you're only hot when you're hot. And when the song starts sliding down the charts, everyone just passes you by. You know, and it's quite a, a lot of narrative for a four-minute song. But it really is a showcase of how the music business was run in those days and for a lot is run still today. You know, if, if you had a number one hit this year and next year your best hit is a number 35, you're done. You know, top 40 hits don't matter anymore. You got to be top 10, top five, won't number one. One thing I've always wondered about this, um, but never found an answer to, and maybe someone out there can enlighten me. You know, maybe it's mentioned in an interview that I've never heard or read or whatever. But it, it's why does Ray sound like he sings the final line of the song, the line about making some real money, as if he's trying to hold water in his mouth? I almost, I can see him singing it with his head arched back. You know, so that it doesn't spill all over the front of his shirt, and there's and there's a the pretty distinct gargle to his words, and the quality of his voice is audibly different. You know, he doesn't, um, he doesn't sound the way he sounds for the rest of it. And I get that part of that is because he's changing the character; he's gone from the singer to the manager. But just the the quality of of the sound of his voice is audibly different, not just the tonal voice, but you know, like how it's mic'd kind of thing. Um, does anyone have any ideas? Am I the only one that's noticed this? I can't be, there's no way it's pretty obvious, but uh, I've never heard it mentioned or talked about at all. As I've mentioned a hundred times on this podcast already, Dave's guitar tone on this track is fantastic. I don't think, I, I think it's fitting that we're, we, on this podcast, we talk about, the Beatles and the Kinks, because for my money, I can't think of two guys that played with more guitar tones than Dave Davies and George Harrison. They really used guitar tones in all the music that they did um, and didn't marry themselves to one. I can always hear when it's Clapton or B.B. King or Santana, those tones are always the same, but Harrison and, and Davies, they'll, change it mid song or have the lead guitar be a very different tone than the rhythm guitars and stuff like that. And more than just switching to a rhythm setting, like most guys would have done, 
it's like, all right, I'll play rhythm through this Fender amp and lead through this Marshall amp. Like it's a totally different tone. And his tone on this, uh, on this tune is just killer. You know, it's, it's like, uh, that opening riff is just crunchy, but, and it's full, but it doesn't have the overly distorted sound that sometimes makes it muddy. Cause you start getting like a distortion loop where you're playing one chord, but you're still getting a little bit of the distorted reverb from the preceding chord. And then it's just noise on top of noise. This one, it's clean. It's crunchy. It's full. It's just a great, um, great tone. And that opening riff also, he's just basically working with standard chord shapes. So it's not even like a, a full-on riff as much as it is just a very specific rhythm guitar pattern. And uh, every now and then he throws in a 4-3 suspension. And what that means is he's taking the middle note of the chord, which is the third, and raises it up to the fourth for just a beat before he resolves it back to the third. And you do this without changing any of the other notes. That's called a suspension. You are suspending the third to the fourth uh, in a 4-3 suspension. And the suspensions are really the only notes in this riff that aren't part of the basic chords. And you can hear them. It's, it's, they're the little moving lines within the riff. But that's basically it. So you've got a simple guitar part that, you know, most of the listeners here that have played guitar can probably figure out pretty easily. Um, but with the combination of everything else that's going on, it's just a killer opening riff. And the bulk of the song is written over the same chords as, as the riff. Uh, we're in the key of A, and the whole verse is just A, G, E, G. Uh, and because of this chord, those chords, you'll sometimes see it referenced as being in the key of D, since A and G are the dominant and subdominant chords of that key, but it's really in the key of A. And that's made more apparent by the fact that we really don't get a D chord until after two full verses are sung. So you can't go two full verses without ever playing the home key, the home chord, right? But we always resolve to A. So essentially the chord progression is a one, a four, a four, that's the G, a five, and then four, a four. Pretty simple stuff. And then during the instrumental breakdown um, with some of Gosling's best organ work on the entire album, I think, the band is just riffing over a D minor chord. There's nothing too complicated about this song as far as its construction is concerned, but that's also what makes it feel like a classic King song because it's just about the band rocking out. And it leaves room for you to really focus on what Ray's singing because he's actually saying something, right? These are not just words to fill in the melody. He's actually telling a story here. Um, just like most of the songs on this album, this is one of my favorite songs on this album. I think I've said that about all of them so far this week. Uh, it's just a great one to crank up the volume to. It's got a great lyric and the band is super tight. And Avery's drumming, oh my God. It's a crime. I, I've said it before. I'll say it again. If you're new to this podcast, if this is your first episode you're listening to, when you go back and listen to the rest of the catalog, you're going to hear me say this again. Mick Avery is the most underrated guitar player. Jeez. Uh, He's the most underrated drummer of his generation. You know, the Beatles, the Who, the Rolling Stones, the Kinks, of those four bands, he's really the only one that doesn't get the accolades as a drummer. And it's a crime because 
he might be better than all of them, but that's up for debate. But he's definitely one of my favorites uh, of all time. He's just such a good, tasteful drummer. And the work he's doing here, these fills are just so tight, but then also kind of sloppy, which is something that a lot of bands can't do, where you can play loose and tight at the same time. Think like Credence, you know, where they can play almost like they feel like they're about to fall apart, but it still is just locked right into that groove. I mean, that's a that's a tough thing to do, but Avery can manage to do it. You know, his fills feel loose. They feel like he's almost just like flailing his arms and whatever the drum hits is what it hits, but they're always good. Um, so yeah, Mick, if you ever hear this, uh, I do want you to know that I feel like you don't get the credit you deserve and I'd be happy to talk to you for this podcast all about that. All right. That's about it. All I got for this song. Uh, there's not much to talk about cause it's not much going on. Like I said, it's a pretty simple song, but it's a great one. And if you haven't heard it or you haven't listened to it in a while, put it on the headphones, turn the volume up as loud as you can take it and just take it all in. It's a good tune. And then go check out the last DJ by Tom Petty and the heartbreakers. All right. I will talk to you guys all later again, swing by for all the information you need about this podcast including a list of all the songs we've already covered in uh, 214 episodes. And uh, I will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening.